Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to The Times. Go to thetimes.co.uk. Every goal, every game, everywhere. The Times and the Sunday Times, now with goals. Thank you for downloading and choosing to spend your digital time with us. We know you have lots of options, and we truly appreciate it. I'm Gabriel Marcotti, and I'm excited because in the studio this week, we're joined by Alison Rudd, Rory K. Smith, and down the line, from Germany, it's Mr. Matt Hughes. Hello, off to take the corner. Here's Dimichelis, it's gone in, and Manchester City are level, and Arsenal are looking at a third consecutive draw in the Premier League. Arsenal and Manchester City, the champions versus the Gooners. Alison, I I read a report in reference to the Rainbow Laces that Arsenal were, quote, chasing rainbows. Do you know what that means? Uh, (laughs) uh, Well, I think someone's trying to be clever. I assume they mean... Arsenal look good. Arsenal look good enough to maybe be finding the pot of gold one day and winning something. Is it is it the same as chasing waterfalls as commemorated by TLC? <laughs> Apologies for Rory. Yeah, no, they, they're wearing rainbow laces, and and okay, sometimes the sometimes the pun comes before what it might mean. And and the question is, what did Arsenal, who had a reputation last season for for failing miserably against the bigger clubs, did they show enough? grit, determination, class to do better this season and there were some good signs. Yeah. Okay. Why don't we ask the person who actually wrote it because he's with us. Matt Hughes wrote that line. That's right, Matt. That was you, wasn't it? I fear it may have been, yeah. Pretty impossible. It's trying to achieve the impossible, isn't it? I think Arsenal trying to play the way they do and win big trophies is impossible as we've seen for well, since 2004, and although they did look encouraging in aspects going forward on Saturday, they showed all the familiar failings at the bat, um, and particularly given their defensive crisis, I, I cannot I cannot see them being better than third, which is probably fine for the, you know for the for the owners and fine for their business model, but it probably isn't going to make the fans happy. Well, you were there. What would you make of Danny Welbeck? This was, of course, his debut. I thought he 
played quite well. He brought something different. He's got he's a lot better than I certainly. He's a different and I would say more um, useful option than Olivier Giroud because he's he d- he's movement is better and he's quicker. He missed the one great chance that came his way, which is a re- oft made criticism of him that he's he's a bit profligate. So I think he showed good and bad. He showed why Arsenal signed him, but also why Manchester United let him go. Right. Speaking of Welbeck, in a game like this, up against Vincent Company and, um, and Martina Michelis, I thought, wow, Welbeck's actually probably a better matchup from an Arsenal perspective than, than Olivier Giroud. They do, they do different things, don't they? Well, that's why. I think Company's a little bit susceptible to pace. He gets turned quite easily, Company. There's something. Unlike Demi Chelis, who's no, probably more in Thiago Silva rolled into one. Come on to Demi Chelis. Um, I think Tump- there's some, yeah, Company's not quite. He's brilliant at times, but he's not quite the defender his reputation suggests he is, Company. Um, Demi Chelis, I, I can't think of a player who has transformed his, his image more than Demi Chelis, and not just because of his haircut. I think there was a time when Demichelis was seen as the weak link. I think he's crucial. He's keeping Mandala out of the team. He, he's, a, he's a perfectly good defender, Martin Demichelis. I think Britain owes him an apology. It's good for Pellegrini, though, isn't it? Because everyone was saying, can he not see it? Is it his blind yeah, spot? Yeah. Look, we can all see it. He can't see it. And he did see the right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, yeah, we should all apologise to him. I think you particularly, Dan, should apologise <laughs> to Martin Demichelis. No, I, I think, well, but I still think we'll see two Arsenals when Giroud's fit. I think you'll see an Arsenal that's more built to keep possession and play off Giroud and an Arsenal that's more built to counter-attack with either Sanchez or Welbeck up front. I think there'll be two distinct approaches depending on opponents and depending on the games, which is the one thing that Arsenal really haven't had for quite a long time is, is an ability to change the way they play. And I think that's a that's an encouraging thing. There is this profligacy about Welbeck. Although he, did, he hit the post near the bar. He did the post, yeah. Which isn't, you know, is that a miss? I think Hughes has been a bit harsh. I mean, I realise he didn't go in, but it's still, you know, it's hitting the post. Steve Wilson on match of the day thought it had gone in. That's how good it was yeah. as a miss. You mentioned Alexis Sanchez there, and um, when he's good, he's one of my favourite players, even though he has a girl's name. Alison, I, I thought he was tremendous. Um, and, and, and I think while on the, on the space of it, on the surface, people, you know, looked at it and said, well, you know, he's, he's a little bit like all those other Arsenal players, like little nippy guy. But um, actually, I, I think. He's really well suited to to the Premier League. Were you as impressed with him as, as I was? Yeah, but mainly because I was so unimpressed with his first few outings where he looked... He was so busy scampering around trying to look classy that, that he didn't go anywhere. He he was sometimes just running in circles and... I, I, I don't know. I just I just felt oh that's that's a bit disappointing. But then then it, you know what he was doing presumably was just getting to grips with the pace of the game here. And I think this was the match in which he showed yeah 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 okay I get it now. I've acclimatised now. I can do it. And um, all the things that were slightly irritating about him in his first few matches were were not. Maybe this is where he fulfils the the potential and reaches the levels that you know were were sort of uh, uh, pushed upon him when he was at Udinese, when people thought that he would become one of the best players in the world? Well, he, he, it's not like he, he did badly at Barcelona. No, I'm just, not everyone's overshadowed by, ne- by Messi to an extent Neymar. But yeah, I mean, I think he, there's no question he's an extremely good footballer and he could well become one of the sort of top five in the Premier League. Can you count five Premier League players who are better than him right now? Fabregas. I didn't actually name them. I said, can you count to five? <laughs> Probably gets up, yeah, five-ish. Not necessarily better okay. than him, but in, this, in the same sort of class. 
All right, uh, another guy who I'm more interested in than Alexis Sanchez, Captain Jack Wilshire. Now, I thought, looking back, I thought he was, he was good against England, and, and I thought this was one of his um, better performances in an Arsenal shirt, albeit in a different position. Hughes, are you ready to say that he's turned the corner? Certainly showed encouraging signs. The, the, the most encouraging is that he actually scored a goal, which for Jack Wilshire is fairly rare. It's only the 11th goal in five seasons in and around the Arsenal first team which for a, you know ostensibly an attacking midfield player is pretty extraordinary really and it cuts to the heart of the dilemma that Hodgson and him and Wenger are facing really which is where to play and Wenger wants to play him further forward Roy Hodgson through force of circumstance and lack of options wants to play him deeper and it's going to be very interesting to see if he can cope with doing two, two different jobs he's, he's saying all the right things and if you going to get an England team he's probably going to have to play deeper so he will do his best but it's it's, it's going to be pretty difficult for him to um, sort of manage his mind and body through two different roles. Now on the flip side uh, much as I love Frank Lampard Jr. I, I thought he had a, a really poor game. Now obviously he's filling Yaya Torre's big shoes and those are very big shoes belonging to a very big man was that part of the problem for City that the reason why maybe they didn't get going as easily as they could have or do you look at it the other way and say you know what all your moaning and complaining we had two penalty shouts and we hit the woodwork twice we could have easily scored six I don't well no, I, th- I thought City played well and they, they finished the game really strongly and I, I, I like most people I suppose, suppose thought they were going to win it and probably should have given the amount of energy they had at the end of the game which um, when you're away from home and you're you're juggling your Europe, difficult European group. That that bodes really well. That they really went for it at the end there. Lampard, I, you know, I just think he spent what was it, eleven years at Chelsea. But I mean, to spend that long at one club and then expect him to just slot into a club which has, um, it's it's different in so many ways. It just is to slot in and as you say to to somehow replicate what Yaya does. He's not ever going to do that. I just I just think. It seems odd to say it because he's a really intelligent bloke, but I think he was slightly overawed by it, rather than just suddenly having gone completely off the board. I think that's a little bit harsh to, to speak up for Frank Lampard for a second. I doubt he was overawed, but he did look like a 36-year-old who's barely played since May. He wasn't wasn't good, but he looked lacking fitness as much as anything else, and it would be hard. It would be um, I think a bit premature to dismiss his. But you can be you can. But Matt, you minutes. you can be on the decline at the club that you know really well because you know how it ticks. It's hard to join a new club, the champions, and you know, and then, and then be able to work out how you balance your age and how you you you. You know, t- you know he, Frank Lampard was very good. He lasted so long because he times everything so well. He knows when to emit those bursts of energy. I guess, but I wouldn't have thought he'd have felt particularly nervous. Gareth's won Premier League titles, European Cups, and no, not nerves. Know, 80, just, 80, just, 80, 80, just 80, in, in, it's not nervousness particularly. It's just an inability to 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 do what you do best somewhere new. All right, enough Lampard. Um, sorry, you hate him, Alison. I don't hate um, him. <laughs> Hey, I, I want to ask you about this, Rory, because um, you're, you're more of a Hispanophile than the rest of us. Manuel Pellegrini complained about the referee. Now, last season, I remember him doing it once and then feeling horrible and contrite about it and apologizing a few days later. Did he get a little carried away here? Because he did have a point with the handball and the, I guess, was it was it Aguero or, or, or Silva who was being fouled? Aguero. But... By the same token, I mean, 
we've seen it's the Premier League. We've seen far worse. I mean, this is this is the land of, of Moss and Clattenburg and, and whatnot. He did it twice last season, didn't he? There was one in the Champions League, one in, and then after okay, Anfield, it was twice. Anfield. No, 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 it, was, it doesn't happen very but often. You, you're referring to the one at Anfield, or the one after the Champions League? I was referring to the Champions League one. Yeah. He also criticised Lattenberg after Anfield, so you wonder whether he maybe feels put upon by Mark Lattenberg. I thought the, probably the most legitimate complaint was for Arsenal's second goal. There was a push on that prevented company getting to the ball. That was a free kick, no question about that in my mind. Um, I don't like it when managers criticise referees. I think it's lazy, and I think that we, we would do everybody a favour if we didn't report it and didn't talk about it. Really? Yeah. You think we should just put up with injustice? No, I think if, it, if it's really flagrant, then maybe. But the fact is that it just becomes a default stance for managers after games right. that haven't quite gone their way. So it's okay for the media to criticise referees, right? No, I, I mean, I try and, try and avoid it as much as possible. I think there's too much focus on referees. Are we allowed to criticise players? Can we have opinions? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah of course. But the, the, again, if referees make really flagrant mistakes, then fine. But if it's a kind of 50-50 judgment call type thing... It does, I don't think it helps, I don't think it creates a positive environment around the game to, to constantly kind of buy into this managerial agenda of, oh, it's the referee's fault. That game on Saturday was a draw, that was a fair result. Both teams deserved it, City probably could have nicked it at the end. But there's no point, what, what, what benefit does it give to anybody to sort of create this climate whereby Clattenburg, when he nets, nets referees, Man City might have other things that Pellegrini's criticism at the back of his it, mind it's it, not in anybody's well, interest okay so the reason people do this and it, it is entirely in their interest and uh, Pellegrini doesn't do it very often and I don't no, think he's this better is what he's doing he's better it, but than most. the reason you do this is to plant a seed of doubt in the referee's mind and to get a psychological edge yeah that's not and I think we, we know who does it and when they've been doing it for years yeah so, so when you yeah. say what's the point that's the point, no, 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 that's the point to serve your team and help your team the next time you have their referee that's the point for them I'm not sure it's in our interest as observers and fans of the game to, to buy into it to give their complaints about so, officials that's fair enough I, I can see that yeah exactly so in terms of these individual criticisms yeah I think Pellegrini probably had a point but there's something slightly distasteful about him kind of airing, airing his dirty linen like this Juicy, you're in Germany right now because you're doing a, a travelogue on Dortmund and the Ruhr region. No, you're not. But wonderful and warmed by the local passionate fans. Uh, obviously, Arsenal play Borussia Dortmund uh, in the in the Champions League. Do you get the sense looking at this, despite the fact that you know with Arsenal you have usual questions with Borussia Dortmund, uh, you, you've got you know no more Lewandowski, you've got a level of, of, of uncertainty now, and Gundogan of course still out. That these two two groups, these two teams feel like they're they're ultimately going to walk their groups. Uh, well, they, sh- they should both be pretty confident of qualifying. Yeah, Anderlecht and Galatasaray, not not the strongest opponents. Um, but as you say, both teams are sort of in a little bit of a sort of state of transition. Arsenal trying to rebuild, Dortmund clipping of injuries and you know lots of key players since they won the you know since they got to the Champions League final last year. So they're probably not as strong as they would like to be. It's still a test for Arsenal, particularly the. The defence, Chambers will have to play at right back because Debussy's injured. Because Monreal stays at left back with Gibbs coming back. Cashelny's nursing his Achilles problem. So they're, you know they're one in defence injury from serious serious problems. So it'll be um be interesting night for him, and uh, it'll certainly be noisy. It always is in Dortmund. I'm not sure Galatasaray, managed by Cesare Prandelli, would be the idea. I take Hughes's point, and I think I think Arsenal but Dortmund probably will qualify, but. Galatasaray aren't an easy team to have to face. Certainly in Istanbul, they are capable of taking points off both of those teams in Istanbul. 
and Arsenal go there in the last game. So they'll want to get it sort of sewn up before then. I would, I would suggest. Especially does Arsenal have seen in, in recent years quite how much damage can be done by finishing second rather than first. But the thing, with, the weird thing with Dortmund and Arsenal is that they must be so familiar to each other. I know that they've both had bits and bobs of change, but is it what the third time in four years they've played each other? It's, yeah. There was something very sort of disappointingly familiar about the Champions League draw this this year for the groups. Feels like, feels like really, seen it all I'm before. really excited now, Rory. Yeah, I can tell. <laughs> well, that's what I'm trying really to do, Hugh. Well, I mean, fired, fired me up. I, I, I think that's something we're going to have to wrap our heads around because you know we're used to the idea of Liverpool playing Everton every year, or twice a year actually, sometimes even more. Uh, no, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. It's just, no, and, and it is. It's, I'm not saying that need to have sort of major change or whatever don't turn everything into an argument Gab it, it, it's slightly disappointing that it happened so in so many groups that, or three or four groups this year that you have teams who have played each other yeah. relatively recently well, that is nice when, when teams appear in different combinations in Europe City, Bayern and CSK Moscow of yeah. course were all in the same group uh, last year too but uh, of course instead of Victoria Pilsen they get, they get to enjoy the delights of Roma Westwood with the corner Senderos rising and Bon Lahore and on a ground where they have such a fine record, Aston Villa lead once again. Shocking defending from Liverpool. They failed to react to Senderos's header. And it's two in two games for Gabby Agbon Lahore. All right, moving on from that to Anfield, Liverpool and Aston Villa. Uh, Roy, you knew this was coming up, so I'll get this out of the way. A few years ago, and you still get hate for this because people assume that if you say something once, uh, your opinion will never change. You suggested that Paul Lambert was a better coach than Brendan Rodgers or was better at the time in a very specific thing. And you're going to have all your caveats. But, you know, that's not how no, social no, no. media it's works. Not, it's not a caveat. It's what I said. I said that there was a time when it appeared to me that Paul Lambert was better at making changes in a game than Rodgers. That, over the last couple of years, has changed, partly through their circumstances. What I will say... What I will I say... silly. No, no, no. Rodgers obviously has kicked on massively in a way that Lambert hasn't. It's important to note that that doesn't mean I was wrong. It just means that things changed. This victory for Villa wasn't anything about that. It was about the fact that Lambert got his tactics spot on. And there is something about the is way... That because that he's better than Rodgers? No, no, no. It's just, <laughs> I was like, I'll give you a chance to gloat. Funnily enough... There was, there was another game this weekend that, that, that kind of reminded me of this. That was Napoli losing to Chievo in Italy. Now, Nat- Napoli lost that game to Chievo mm-hmm. last year as well in r- similar circumstances where they battered Chievo. I think they had 33 shots on goal. Yeah, not this year they didn't. Chievo obviously have, have a way of setting up against Napoli. It just, you, you, get, you get this. You get teams that suit playing other teams. And I think it's, it's true with Villa and Liverpool that Villa, their strengths obviously kind of maximise and serve to make appear Liverpool's weaknesses and they've done this several I think they've not lost at Anfield since 2010 uh, so that's three visits from Lambert without defeat at Anfield with Aston Villa he knows how to set his teams up at Anfield against Liverpool and even against different managers different players different systems I'm not sure I buy that but um, Alison was it maybe simpler the fact that a defensive screw up early on um, the visitors take the lead it allows them to sit back you have the threat of Weiman and Agbon Lahore on the break. Sturridge is supposedly injured. Sterling is supposedly being rested. You've got three dudes up front who hadn't played together very much at all in Lalana, Balotelli and Markovic. And Liverpool couldn't score and couldn't even create many chances. Well, I'd rewind and say I, I would give credit to Lambert. And there is, my sources in the Midlands say that Lambert has always been annoyed by how 
um, Rogers has had all this praise as being a very, very astute coach tactically, whereas Lambert feels he's just as astute. He doesn't never had the resources that Rogers had, and therefore never gets the publicity. But well, Rogers also has I better hair he, and better teeth, Alison. Undoubtedly, he's capable of stringing a sentence together that's of interest to the general public. Ooh. <laughs> oh, well, if Paul Lambert wants better publicity, you should say things more interesting. And uh, well, he doesn't. Well, he doesn't. Want, he doesn't want that sort of publicity. He just wants people to say, "Wow, what a great tactical think, well, he, coach." He doesn't he want them to say right, anything else. But, so right. I think it's, he's inspired, and when he when he meets. Liverpool, I think he's, and this happens a lot. Man, there are certain managers who really? lift their own game against clubs where they feel I, there's I, an I, imbalance I, in perception. This was new to me. I thought the whole Lambert Rogers thing was just some some Rory thing, but in, 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 instead, that there is a genuine sort of uh, uh, edge there to the two of them. Well, I don't know if Rory started it, it or not. But no, no, I, 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 I absolutely did not start <laughs> some sort of feud between Lambert and Rogers. <laughs> Liverpool's great success last season was that they were a very settled side. It's the same thing that we might see from Man United this season. Rodgers obviously had one eye on the Champions League, his easiest Champions League game at home to Ludogorets. He, he, he was saving Sterling and from no, Ludogorets. No, but I, th- I think that he he was in, he was minded to change the team a little bit to keep legs fresh. He this is an, a relatively new challenge for Roger, for Rodgers trying to do well in two competitions at once, and it is very draining. And I I suspect that against a team like Villa, who are well set up by a manager who apparently wants to beat Rodgers at all costs, <laughs> um, it maybe wasn't the time to to put Markovic, Lalana, and Balotelli all on at the same time and I think the fact that he brought Sterling on at half time suggests that he recognised that Usually these people want to talk about Liverpool I'd much rather talk to you about Aston Villa Tom Cleverley I, I was I was excited when he signed I, I thought the level of vitriol he faced was kind of way over the top and, and, and I think on, anyway, on top of that you understand you know why it's United and whatever else but could we be looking back and saying ooh this might have been one of the best bits of business on deadline day uh, well, it certainly wasn't cheap business. Well, no, all. please tell us what you know about the fee, because he's, I... Um, oh, he's more the wages. I think he's about 80 grand a week, which for Aston Villa is a lot of money. Um, hey, did he get a bump? Or was that his United contract? That, that was his United contract. <laughs> Sorry, who signed uh, that contract? I think the problem with Tom Cleverley has been determining where we're best to use him. He clearly has talent... An ability. He's very good at doing everything fairly well. He seems to lack a sort of exceptional um, quality that makes him stand out. But if you have a manager who was prepared to back him and use him in a specific way and you know give him clear instructions, he, he may he may fry. United, he was never going to get that because he, he was kind of bits and places player who was used to cover up deficiencies in the squad elsewhere. If Lambert knows how he's going to use him, then he, he, he could clearly be an asset for them. Cleverly Delph Westwood. That, that, that seems pretty pretty reasonable to me in, in, in midfield, no? Yeah, no, they, they, they look like a decent side for As I say, I'm, re- I'm really surprised by how well they've started. Um, I'm surprised that Roy Keane and Paul Lambert appear to be working well together. I don't know how long it'll last, but that they, they do seem to have, uh, for want of a better phrase, rubbed off on each other quite well. Um, the problem with Villa for a long time was that they, they seemed to be willfully ignoring a lot of the, the higher paid players in their squad because they wanted rid of them. Lambert's kind of back down now whether that's out of necessity out of his own because he's been told he's allowed to or whatever I don't know but they, they do seem to have a bit more depth about them they've started very well they look defensively very solid despite not having particularly good defenders Nathan Baker and Philip Senderos 
are not Franco Baresi and Alessandro Costa by any stretch of the imagination. Although, I mean, I think Baresi. No, no, he could have said Alan Hansen and Mark Lawrenson, but no. No, he's well, got to go choose your time. Want guys. someone better? Baresi and Costa now are probably technically better footballers than Nathan Baker and Philippe Senderos. They're getting the most from their resource, and they deserve a huge amount of credit. Uh, yeah, um, I mean, this is you know, you looked at that and you thought this is where Villa come apart, surely, because Ron Villar, most people's World Cup eleven, he's missing too come on, you know, Liverpool have come up by nth degree, they're not going to be able to do it again at Anfield, and they did. Okay, we, we, we've only mentioned um, Balotelli in, uh, in in passing, but obviously I'm con- contractually obliged to talk about him for ages, but I'll do it in a certain <laughs> contract, a certain context here. I was struck by this because I saw it when Chelsea played Everton uh, with Diego Costa and, um, and Seamus Coleman, and I saw it again with Philippe Sandros on, on Mario Balotelli, they said, yeah, I'm watching TV, and I hear these ex-pros talking about how clever Senderos is, who's getting inside Balotelli's head, and, you know, a bit of roughhousing, ha-ha, welcome to the Premier League, Mario. And they said the same thing when Diego Costa was sort of reacting to Seamus Coleman. And I'm thinking to myself, ooh, are they really being clever, or are they just kind of being idiots? I'm not going to get into the ethical thing of, of what Senderos was doing, but, yeah, you're trying to wind him up, and then if you get caught, if people see you kicking at him, you get sent off, and it doesn't really help your team at all. Same thing with Diego Costa. It was all a big giggle, but then he did pick up a yellow in that, and that might cost him a suspension at that point. Am I wrong here, Matt? Like, like should we just not actually really be praising that, especially when people get caught? Well, it's a calculated risk, isn't it? It's, um, if it works and the player gets, if the striker loses their head and gets sent off or whatever, or gets frustrated and starts sulking and disappears, it works. If not, then it can easily backfire. I mean, I'm not a big one for sort of praising the dark arts. Perhaps you'd ask our South American expert. I'm sure he's all over that kind of stuff. Seamus Coleman and Philippe Sendras, of course, uh, are both uh, South American players raised and schooled in the Paolo Montero school. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'd, yeah, I'd, I think Hughes is right. It is a calculated risk. I'm not sure... It's not something we should be celebrating. No, though, well, it? it's kind of stupid. I think, I think the, the thing with that is that it's more that it, the risk is, it is a calculated risk, but the risk is enormous because how do you know that the player whose head you're trying to get in, in inverted commas, um, isn't going to react by lifting his game? It just seems like a, I don't quite understand the psychology of it. You, and and are, are strikers that sort of mentally fragile I, that they're affected by it? I don't know. I don't know if it works. I, I, I also kind of think that... The, there's massive double standard because, of course, Marco Materazzi, who supposedly oh, did this God. all the time, and I have I have to bring him up occasionally as well. No, but but you but but, the, but no, no, he's he's Jesus. the devil. He's the disease of football, right? But then when Senderos does it, no, oh, it's all good. When were you most recently in Marco Materazzi's house? What? When were you most recently in Marco Materazzi's house? <laughs> in May. Yeah, there you go. And yeah. then I saw him in Rio at the World Cup. But but I, I think it is a valid point. Um, Alison, how many how many players? in that game was Sendros going to get close to anyway I mean okay, I but it doesn't mean that he has to kick the one guy he gets close to yeah, all the time we're creating this I think He's, he was like in Balotelli's narrative. underwear it was, it was like X-rated that's because Balotelli was there yeah I know but but, so there, it's, I don't but it's not something to praise him for I, I think it's because false logic to assume that Sendros had a particular plan for a particular type of player with a particular reputation it could have been well, Lambert and he would Ricky Lambert and he might have done the same thing well, let me, let me leave you with this thought on Balotelli. Do you think, so I'm going to try, and I know it's very difficult to play pop psychologist, and especially getting into Mario's mind, but the fact that he didn't react and he didn't go crazy and he didn't kick out and he didn't sulk. Um, oh, but he did sulk, didn't he? I mean, you know, that was the... 
No, he didn't solve. That was the narrative. I thought that he yeah, okay, a bit that, salty. Yeah, okay, but can I say something? But that, 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 that's a stupid narrative from the same just the same, bunch it's the same of narrative we're buying into by saying that Sendros was practicing dark arts deliberately on a play who has a reputation no, for getting we, a bit. We saw Sendros kick him several times. We saw Sendros rub it, rub up against him in a rather dubious way. Right, we, we we saw this happening. He was we praised for it on television. We don't know that Sendros would not have done the same thing to any other striker. A less attract, a less handsome striker. You don't think part, so? Part of the Villa, the Villa that been Diego Costa, strategy. You, Villa strategy was to, to look tough and no nonsense and to, right, to be right, feisty well, throughout. I was driving at something else. I know, the and I'm saying you shouldn't be. No, I'm saying like the the, the 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 fact that I'm wondering is this a learning opportunity for Balotelli where he goes home and says like, oh look, that guy was was acting like uh, like a fool the entire game. If I met him in a dark alley, I. I'd tend him into, uh, turn him into a little puddle of Swiss oil. But I actually kept my cool. And guess what? It's not so bad. All that happened is we lost a football match. So what? All right. Enough of this. Let's move on to our debate. We're going to talk Newcastle here. Listeners know we tend to only talk Newcastle when George Culkin is around for obvious reasons. Um, this time we're going to attempt to understand this situation without the help of, uh, 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 of George. And... Um, I want to start with you, Matt, because obviously you're very close to Alan Pardew. You guys have a lot of things in common. How do you think he's feeling right now? Excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone really wants anyone up there, really. I, I, I did feel sorry for Pardew last season to an extent when he was getting hammered, despite Newcastle being eighth in the Premier League. And they did tail off badly, but, you know, he was judged by their excellent start and the seemingly impossible standards that he has to uh, aspire to. These things, sometimes they reach a point of no return and, and, and for Pardew that could, that could be coming quickly unless they get a couple of wins. Rory, I'm always struck by how sort of reading the English media they, they, you, and I have not spent a lot, I've been to Newcastle, I've not spent a lot of time there. You obviously grew up closer to there than, than, than I did. But I lived in Newcastle for a bit. You actually lived, good. Yeah. Then, well, A, why is it sort of treated almost as like some sort of foreign entity by the, 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 the national media? It's like a place where the thinking and the logic is just so different from, from the rest of the country. Because uh, it is near the soon-to-be independent nation of Scotland. Okay, but they're not particularly Scottish in outlook, are they? No, there's a, big, there's a big, big myth about Newcastle, which, which is that it's, it's um, England's great one-club city, when everyone knows that that's Leeds which is a much bigger city than, than Newcastle and has the same number of football teams. I think the thing with Newcastle There's is... There's a lot of Huddersfield fans in Leeds, aren't there? There are no Huddersfield fans in Leeds at all. There's a lot of Man United fans in Leeds, very odd. Yeah, Newta- Newcastle's kind of far away, basically, from London. That's the thing, it's really far away, Newcastle. It's far away from the media hub. Well, no, I think it. it's... it's The Geordies are... I don't want to be all patronising, but they are slightly separate. Geordies, I'm sure they would say that, as would Scousers. I think that certain motives are ascribed to Newcastle that are maybe not entirely... Legitimate, and it's assumed that they they function in in a different way, because it's always been assumed that the the club functions in a different way and the fans function in a different way, almost as though it means more in Newcastle for some reason. I I don't think that's really true. I think football clubs mean the same amount to everybody, whatever the club is, wherever they are. But they are held to some extent to a different standard. But then at the same time, in in, in recent years, they have kind of behaved slightly weirdly. Newcastle, Newcastle, Newcastle. Currently, the current regime do weird things. Yeah, are, are they weird? Is, is there some weirdness that you don't understand, uh, Alison? There's, there's, there's an owner that doesn't speak, which isn't unusual particularly. It's but not like Roman Abramovich is not No, exactly. Here. It's not completely unusual. But 
I think it's the juxta- juxtaposition of him being, by all accounts, uh, a great guy to go drinking with, a bit of a laugh. He looks really ordinary and accessible, and yet he isn't. And he's quite hard to predict what he'll do next. Yeah, you kind of ex- I think he enjoys that. One presumes he does. You kind of expect it with a Russian billionaire that he's not going to talk. You don't necessarily expect someone like Mike Ashley, who's a sort of self-made man, or I suppose Abramovich is a self-made man. It's it's, le- it's less surprising that Abramovich doesn't talk than it is that Ashley doesn't talk. Well, there is the language thing with Abramovich yeah, course, as yeah. well. But, but yeah, so I think I think, well, I think, I think there is yeah. there is th- it is all these juxtapositions. And you know, uh, Pardew has himself said that. Ashley's a great bloke to go drinking with. He's just not a great, necessarily a great bloke to work for. And I think we, and because we can never second guess as the media and indeed the fans, second guess what's going to happen next. It does have this sort of strange fascination as a club, as an entity. Well, is the danger with Newcastle though at the moment not that? So the fans don't like Pardew. That's clear. If you were to look at it kind of objectively, you'd probably assume that Pardew's reached that stage that a lot of managers reach at a lot of clubs where, where things have kind of stopped working a little bit. He's not got that same impact on the players, which happens to most managers in most clubs. It wouldn't be a shock if a couple of defeats down the line, if they sacked him, it would be hard to, t- to say that that's a really bad decision from Ashley. But because no one's quite sure how committed Ashley is to Newcastle, what his intentions are with Rangers, all this stuff... Is there not a danger that Newcastle trying to get trapped in, in a sort of form of stasis where basically Ashley thinks, what's the point of paying up however much of Pardew's contract I've got to pay up? When we w- we're not going to get relegated, you know, we'll fin- we will finish mid-table, it probably won't be a great season, but there's far worse teams in the Premier League than Newcastle. Why not just stick with it until I can work out what I want to do with this club? Because that's the big thing with Newcastle, no one's quite sure what Ashley wants to do. Well, Hughesy, is, 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 do you see where Rory's coming from? I, I mean... Is it like a guy who kind of bought a toy and then isn't quite as interested in it uh, anymore, and so um, he just kind of leaves it lying around on his bedroom floor? I think Rory sit upon two things that are important. One is the sort of uncertainty that surrounds the club, and uncertainty in sport is never good. You need a plan, you need to be moving forward. If you're not, you go backwards pretty quickly. The other thing is the sort of Newcastle to an extent. They're all, they're almost victims of the nature of, of the of the Premier League. They're they're probably too good and too big to go down or they they did relatively recently. But they're never really gonna challenge in the upper echelon. So almost what's the point of Newcastle? And um, you know, as a result of that, the point of Newcastle is, is sort of civic civic pride and playing good football and winning a few games. Um, and sort of the intangibles become more important than they really really should be and this sort of gives reason for the fans to, to make noise and sound off about other things and they have a go at the manager they have a go at the board when they're kind of they're a bit of a listless a listless ship really and I think no, no matter who was in charge that would almost be the case because of the size the size of the club well, unless they're going to really good sorry, manager or a really, or a really bad manager they're, they're going to be kind of mid, where they are mid, mid-table and fans won't have something to moan about and it's not just it's not just newcastle it's it's kind of it's a lot of a lot of those clubs who are kind of outside of the even the top the top three or four really that there is this sort of sense that things aren't quite right so we've got to change and when we talk about sort of english football short-term focus we forget that there's a lot of clubs that are kind of disenfranchised from from the pursuit of trophies and someone said to me on twitter actually i think it's quite a good point that the reason transfer deadline days become such a big thing is because Getting a good signing in is the, is the closest most clubs will come to winning a trophy. Now, There's n- you're not going to win the league unless you're re- realistically two or three clubs. You know, Arsenal might, but it's going to be Chelsea, City, or United for the foreseeable future winning the title. Really, um, 
you're not, you, chances are you're not going to corrupt because they're all so strong. You know what I mean? Europe. So you, you, you kind of resort to whatever glory you can find, and that, that comes in the transfer market. But I also think it manifests in the sense that, that you, t- you are, when the intangibles are important, as Husey says, then it's much easier to become dissatisfied with those intangibles, to, to decide that something's wrong, even though you don't quite know what it is. I think that we've got, they've gone past the joke stage at Newcastle now. They're so used to not winning anything that they don't care anymore. It's about, um, as, Rory, no, no, as Rory was saying, it's about being able to, to play really nice football and give everyone, a, when they go to St James's, everyone should be feel slightly nervous about going there and playing good football. And what the reason the fans are so annoyed at the moment is that the, the Newcastle started to play some really nice stuff centred around Johan Kabay and maybe you shouldn't have just focus on one player and that was sh- but to have that that pull from under them and he was sold for no good reason at all it completely well that's no, not you know no, what you know what with, i think we're in the media have a duty here to go a little beyond that you know and and i'm sorry and i realize there's god how, how can i say this okay I'll, I'll, I'll take all this back but i'll say this there's a reason all those people went to newcastle in those circumstances and i think we're being a little bit intellectually dishonest as Mourinho might say if we sort of say like, oh, but look, then you sold Yuan Kabai. He had to sell Yuan Kabai. And I think we all know that. But they were playing, yeah, but what you can see and what you can feel if From the fact, yeah, no, I agree is, with that. it's starting to look like this is a scary place to come. And they had pride in what their team were doing. And they were prepared to overlook the fact Pardew was in charge because he wasn't welcome in the first place. So it's about just absorbing what you get and saying, okay, this, is, this isn't so bad. This, and then... It disintegrates quite quickly for whatever the political reasons. And then your manager, uh, I think he's quite statesmanlike when he de- talks about the owner, but the fans don't like it because he just backs Ashley. He doesn't say, I really need this, I really want that. He just says he's the owner, he does what he wants to do. And they just feel trapped in a, a soap opera that's not what they want. And if anyone wants to know what they do want, I suggest they read um, Far Corner by Harry Pearson, which brings that corner of the country to life. Or better yet, read anything by George Calkin, who... Um in addition to being far more handsome than Harry Pearson, is also one of our friends and colleagues. He is very handsome, isn't he, George? But certainly more so than Harry Pearson. I don't know what Harry Pearson looks like, but... <laughs> you, have you met? Have you, do you know what he looks like? He's a perfectly decent bloke, yeah. Relative to George? Well, no one's... Exactly. Compared to George. How about some quick hits? Hang on. Let me get my little um, sound box here so that we can keep everybody disciplined because, of course... Uh, stringent adherence to discipline is the way to enlightenment, as um, Husey and I know all too well. 20-second answers. At 20 seconds, you will hear this. And at 25 seconds, you will hear this, and you will stop talking. For some reason, they've been dubbed the Galacticos with two A's, which I think is absolutely demented and completely unimaginative and shame on the people who keep uh, fueling this. But, Alison, United were, in fact pretty darn good on Sunday, weren't they? Or should we just slow down the bandwagon given that it was only uh, QPR they were playing? QPR, which, by the way, Falcao, when he tweeted them, he said, I'm excited to play Queen's Park Rogers. <laughs> I thought it was interesting. Yeah, well, there's so much to say, so little time. Um, very glad uh, Van Hal started to get personal talking about his wife. I mean, what sort of presents is he going to give her every, every, every weekend? I mean, the, it's all right once on his uh, birthday, but I mean, she's going to presumably need presents at least twice a week or to, to keep it going. Uh, what, what everyone's looking at is presents a euphemism? No. Well, I, he may, he, well, actually, Van Hal did make it sound like it was a euphemism. Um, it was only QPR. I predicted 4 2, and I think that's the sort of season it's going to be. Uh, they're going to they're gonna lose 5 3 and win 4 2 a lot. 
There was so much to say, and yet you spent most of it talking about <laughs> Van Howe's wife. Um, but Van Howe, I think, was very, uh, he was correct when, when he said, uh, look, you know, this is one game, long journey. I really didn't have time to work with these people. Basically saying QPR were rubbish. Now, he cannot stop scoring. Diego Costa has up to seven goals in his first four Premier League games, and he's eclipsed the legendary Mickey Quinn's record. But nobody knew that Mickey Quinn had the record there. Matt, please find new ways to praise him. Well, as a disclaimer, I've never actually not actually seen him play yet this season, unfortunately, due to various uh, fixture quirks. But he, he's, he's been fantastic. The most impressive thing is his intelligence, really, his positional sense. He's great. He always seems to be in the right area. He's got a seems to have an almost telepathic relationship with Cesc Fabregas. And um, if Chelsea keep serving him in the way they are, they're going to go very close to winning the Premier League. Spurs leave two points at the Stadium of Light as Sunderland's late, late, late equalizer makes it 2-2. Still, glass half full for your Spanish-speaking mate Pochettino, Rory? Yeah, an improvement on the on the performance today. It's Liverpool slightly unlucky to, to concede the late equalizer, the Harry Kane on goal. Um, I think for all of those teams in the pack behind Chelsea... Uh, there's, there's good things and bad things, but the main, the most important thing is that they are all waiting for each other. So no one's had a particularly convincing start. Arsenal have drawn three games, so Spurs are still in the hunt for a Champions League place. Obviously, it's very early on, uh, and no one else is clearing away from them. Everton needed to keep a clean sheet, and they did just that, winning two 0 at West Brom. Uh, Allison, is this normal service resuming? Stingy backline and all that? Um, I think. It- probably helped to have a mix of youth and experience at the back because it was Stones and Jagielka this time and um, I think the problem might be that Distan and Jagielka together um, sometimes look a bit overrun um, but uh, on paper I the way it was set up and I love I love I love Coleman and Baines I think I think there's a lot to build on there for Everton maybe adding Stones at the back is the thing to do I love Distan myself Roy Hodgson may have been a bit grumpy after the Norway game, but he was vindicated with that Switzerland result and performance, right, Matt? Uh, Ollie Kay, I think, tweeted out something like, there's not much you can say when every single England players, uh, player plays extremely well. Um, so does that mean that you negative Nellies now will get off his back and just let him do his job? Uh, well, we'll be off his back if he keeps supervising impressive performances like the one in Switzerland last week. Unfortunately, there's going to be not much to write about for the next two years because they've got a, a cakewalk to France. Um, but they, they were good. I like the system. I like the way Sterling is at the centre of it. Um, Wilshire has work to do to nail down the holding role. But um, we're certainly in a, seem to be in a better place than we were in Rio a couple, couple, couple of months ago. Well, it doesn't take too much. One point from three games. Southampton pummel Newcastle 4-0 and Graziano Pelle scores two. Rory, is he the best Italian centre forward in the Premier League? Is there a broader lesson here about perhaps buying players from Holland? Graziano Pelle is probably not the best Italian centre forward in the Premier League because that, I would imagine, is Mario Balotelli. Um, he is a very good centre forward, but no, I don't think there's a broader lesson here about buying players from Holland. The Dutch league has some strengths, but broadly its big weakness is that defenders in it are terrible. So that it's very easy to score goals. It depends on the player who you get from Holland. Pelé's done well. Tadic looks all right as well. Probably better than all right. Uh, there are good players there, but it's not somewhere that you should go and import loads from. Somebody tweeted me last night and said that um, Graziano Pelé was six foot four, Italian and gorgeous. And I thought, wow, he's just 
like me. We're exactly the same. Uh, Gab, one... And it was a dude, yes. It probably was a dude, actually. It's hard to tell. Gab, one for you. We had a replay of the Champions League final on Saturday night. Was it the same result as back in May? Uh, no, we didn't, actually, because uh, Atletico Madrid this time um, won the game. I, it was a remarkable match. Real Madrid uh, in the first half, I thought, looking really, really good. Could have scored three, but Moya was phenomenal in goal. But the usual bugbears, uh, set pieces, no holding midfielders, ending up hurting uh, Carlo Ancelotti's men. Um, I have a lot of praise for Diego Simeone in the paper on Monday. So uh, <laughs> please read it and enjoy it. I get different sound effects, of course. Because I can't work out which buttons you use. Which ones do you use? Ray gun and lightning. Right. I went for punch and guitar solo. Oh, this is Alison's favourite part of the show. Any other business? I just wanted to say, because I was at Selhurst Park, um, and everyone says it now, but I just the fans are just phenomenal. And uh, I spoke to Kevin Day, who put a really nice piece together for Match of the Day 2 about with a Back to the Future theme, which I think worked really well. And um, he's a big Palace fan. And uh, he said, he, as for, for, for balance, he had to try and find some annoyed or disgruntled Palace fans. Uh, you know, the way it's all unfolded this summer, it was it was pretty despairing. But they said they're all so lovely and optimistic and they won't say a word against anybody there. And the, the joy of going there, it was nil-nil and it wasn't great quality. And yet it's still a nice place to go. Regardless of what's happening there, the fans are proper fans. I haven't had any other business. Uh, it's really quick. Uh, we think about offside wrong. really annoys me. What do you mean? All this talk of, oh, if someone's like leg is offside, they are not offside. I, d- I don't understand why FIFA have, have fannied about with the rules so much, but it irritates me every, every game I go to, every, every game I watch. You are offside. The day, the, it was introduced to stop people goal-hanging. You're not offside if you're a centimetre offside. That's not a legitimate decision. I don't know why they got rid of daylight. I think that was a perfectly good rule. Um, but the, the way it is constructed now, it affects attacking moves more than it's meant to. And it provi- it's changed the nature of how we play the game, and I think it needs to be examined. Well, this might be something we can debate in the future. Many thanks to my guests today, Alison Rudd, Rory K. Smith, and taking time out from his busy, busy traveling schedule in Germany. We always appreciate it. It's Mr. Matt Hughes. Check out thetimes.co.uk. If you're a member, you get exclusive football, rugby, and cricket highlights free as part of your subscription. If you're not a member, take our one-pound digital trial today. Just search Times Sport Online. See you same place, same time next week. Till then, bye-bye. Your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times now comes with access to every Barclays Premier League goal. Refresh your app, choose your team, accept notification, and you're away.